Well, hello and welcome to what is the explicit edition of the 175th episode of the Adoption and Fostering podcast from the ANF Network with me, Al Coates. And me, Scott Cassin-Rennie. Why is it explicit? Oh, it is. Oh, sorry. I just realised. Oh, God. <laughs> what? Were you not paying attention? Yes, I was there. I was there. Yes. I've just realised why it's explicit. Boy, is it explicit. Honestly, I... I arrived at this podcast recording a boy and I left a man. <laughs> yeah. um, oh, you did. Yes, because we are we're recording this bit a couple of weeks after the 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 interview of it. But yes, event, you're yeah. right. It was an eye opener and watching your face throughout it was just hilarious. Absolutely. You've got me as some sort of puritanical Quaker <laughs> Ammonite or something. I'm I'm a bohemian man of the world. Well, uh, yes, but but with all of these things that happen. It's just you become more of a bohemian man. <laughs> well, there's a line that you must Ooh. not cross, apparently. Yeah. But uh, yeah. So anyway, we're talking to Lisa Etherson, and she is a psychosexual therapeutic counsellor. And she, um, uh, I mean, long story short, how she got, she contacted me through, I, I did a post and she got in touch with me and she's kind of, we've got a mutual friend. And uh, she said, oh, I, I thought, and I've been recommended to talk to you. And I, and I had a 10 minute conversation with her before we recorded. And I was like, Oh, we've got to get you on yeah. because there's so much stuff. So um, we talk a lot about initially we start kind of with the psychosexual stuff, but then we sort of, we kind of rolled into shame. Didn't we? Um, yes, we did. And I, which was about fascinating. The whole conversation with it. She was, I, to be fair, if you're wondering whether you should listen or not do listen because actually she is just a great crack anyway she's oh, yeah. full of fun full of beans so you'll get you'll get a laugh whether you like the subject or not but yeah um and and I don't, i'm not detracting from some of the stuff we talk about obviously but as ever with us you know we we do, we do go deep but oh. we also have some light moments as well but it's just really insightful i i've used that word a lot lately but well done really insightful to speak to her and just understand a bit more about the complexities of it all because there was some stuff that even I didn't think about in there. There was some stuff, there was new language that Al found out, which is hilarious. So keep listening. That's all I can say. Oh, and um, yeah, we, and some language just, um, you may, may not like, but just go with it. Yeah. Just, just go with it. Yeah. So it's, it's explicit content. It's explicit words as well. And um, yeah, and it, it does get a little bit carry on at one, at some points. Because they're all laughing at me because I say things and yeah, anyway. But um, yeah, I don't think we need any more introductions than that, really, do we? I'd say not. I'd, I'd say, say not. That people are probably really, really intrigued to listen. Well, so Thank you me. have been warned: do not let little ears listen to this. Uh, don't no, put it on blaring um, while your mother's no. in the house. Don't um, tell Alexa to turn on the NF podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, Alexa, not now. My. My Alexa's just piped up there, so <laughs> honestly, <laughs> there should bless her. Yeah. Um, anyway. So yeah. So on on that note, Scott, press play. Bon Jovi. Bon jo anchovy. Play. Anchovy play. Press play. Anchovy play. Play. Bon Jovi. Where's my cassettes? Today we are speaking to Lisa. Edison. And um, uh, another brief introduction is that I was posting something about, I can't really think of it, about shame. And I was just having this sort of conversation on one of the socials. And then um, I got a direct message off Lisa and Lisa says, hey, we should talk. And so we did talk. And out of that conversation, uh, I thought you, we really need to get Lisa onto the podcast. So hello, Lisa. Can you tell us who you are 
and tell us all of the exciting qualifications you've got. <laughs> all of the exciting qualifications I've got. I probably haven't got as many as you think. So um, obviously, I'm Lisa Etherson. I am a psychosexual therapist or sex therapist for, for short. And I'm also doing a PhD. My PhD is in shame, which is why obviously I got in touch with you when I saw that you were, when you had um, posted something. And that is literally my qualifications. You, you, <laughs> they're, they're, not, they're not really, not this massive long list of, of stuff. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that's a pretty high bar, though, to become a sex therapist. Mm, I'd say. Yeah, so it's a postgraduate diploma that you do. So you have to have some degree in something. So my degree was in nursing originally. So I am a, a trained, qualified nurse. See. Um, did that for undersold yourself there, Lisa, didn't you? Undersold <laughs> yourself there. It, yeah. it just seems like a different life. It's not something that I really think of anymore because I've done this mm -hmm. for such a long time, I suppose. Um, and I wasn't really working at the as a traditional nurse, if you like, by that point, but my registration was still valid. Anyway, that's how I got onto the course to be a, a psychosexual therapist. Um, so to train, you are generally either a, a qualified counsellor with a degree um, or a social worker. Strangely right. enough, so there was a couple of social workers on my course or a GP or something along. So they consider us to be allied professionals to counselling. And if you have some sort of allied professional, uh, profession rather at a particular like degree level then they'll they'll take you on the course wonderful i've just got visions of the fact that al could do that course yeah you could no i couldn't that's something to think about al <laughs> don't please don't <laughs> um, so anybody who's listening and wondering why we're laughing you need to take a listen after the music finishes at the end, because I'm insisting that I'll put some of the outtakes on. <laughs> I'm slightly concerned that the outtakes we've got, we haven't even got to the interview yet. <laughs> I'm really, really concerned. Good. It's really quite concerning. Um, but you, we also found out from Lisa before we started that you actually were a host on a punk radio show. I was up until relatively recently. So I did that for a, a long while. So Radio Northumberland. So the show still goes Monday night. Um, on a, yeah, every every Monday, New Year with Newman. So I was one of the, the co-hosts with that. There was um, three of us at the time. Um, I've been replaced by the lovely Karen Goldfinch. Um, and it was just such a, a ridiculous laugh with brilliant music, but the, the banter was... Um, Risky to think. <laughs> well, I can imagine. Okay, here we go. Here yeah. we go. And so here we go. And when we had the conversation, I've got a feeling I was going to do a lot of blushing tonight. I don't know why. I just got that feeling. Yes. Let's right. Let's quickly let's let's try and avoid all the stereotypes about middle-aged men. Right. Um. I was. When we had when we spoke when we you got in touch with me I was fascinated by uh, we we started to talk about shame but I'd like to maybe put that on the shelf for now because we, you were talking about the impact of people's early life experiences on their romantic and their physical sexual relationships as they move into adulthood yeah. and I thought that that for us as a community you know in the podcast we we work and we we sort of the, the community that we serve, uh, you know, with children who've experienced adoption, um, fostered, special guardianship, and the theme through that is children who've experienced trauma and loss and separation, complex early life stories, and uh, and I just thought that was a fascinating aspect that is probably not talked about about how when our children 
move into adolescence and mm-hmm. they sort of start to that that part of their their development sort of starts to mature or or doesn't start to mature or the aspects of that the physicality starts to mature the impact of on them as they um as they grow up really as they become young adults and adults and um yeah so come on and uh, that wasn't really a question it was more of a kind that of, was a horrendous a introduction <clears throat> to this it was a faffy middle-aged oh. man embarrassed oh, <laughs> just be basic about it and also throw in social media in there as well yeah the impact of social media yeah, yeah. i'm saying throw that into the general thing that i was just said so yeah, mm. yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> so the, Look. the question is start, start at the beginning <laughs> whatever it was <laughs> Well, in the work that you do, do you see that the, the the impact of early adversity then can often play out in people's sexual relationships? Without a doubt, yeah. And how I was trained um, was to look at those early experiences because if someone's presenting to me, so I only work with adults, which is probably one of the things I should have said at the beginning. So I work with people 18 plus, um, although I have worked on occasion with people who were younger. Um, so what I'm looking at is I'm looking at the reason why. What, why is somebody presenting with um, a particular problem? So if we just use erectile dysfunction for now, because it's just a, it's a really easy one to, to kind of relate to. So someone comes to me with, um, with erectile difficulties, the likelihood is, is that they're going to be psychological as opposed to physical. So true ED, true erectile dysfunction, is a physical manifestation of a different problem. So that might be something like cardiovascular disease or diabetes or something yeah. along those lines. <clears throat> Whereas um, what I see more often is people with it, like I said, an emotional based or a psychological based erectile difficulty. So they don't actually have erectile dysfunction as such in the, the traditional proper sense. Um, so what they will have will be things like... Um, what again traditionally would have been called as performance anxiety. So my job is to figure out where that performance anxiety has come from. And people very, very rarely make the connection between what's going on for them in adulthood to what's going on or what went on for them in childhood. Because why why would it? You know, there's such a disconnect. And often people can't remember a lot of their childhood experiences as well, depending on, excuse me, when certain events happen. So there's a massive disconnect there. But just to to make this as simple as as possible, um, really, and I suppose, you know, under complicating the issue. If you've got somebody who has been told either implicitly or explicitly that their value comes in how well they perform, for example, and that may be something like school grades, it might be sports it might be <clears throat> playing a musical instrument it, it could be absolutely anything it, it could be about just being well behaved doesn't really matter what it is yeah. then if something happens to them in adulthood where they go into a situation where they feel like they have to perform and they're not performing correctly that's absolutely devastating to them yeah. and i hear it's saying about you know can we put the, the shame to one side you can't actually separate those two things out right because what people are experiencing <clears throat> excuse me i've got such a um, a copy. What people are experiencing is what we would call shame anxiety. So that they're not really experiencing performance anxiety. They're experiencing 
the anxiety that or the anxiety of the shame that they're going to feel when it all goes horribly wrong. So I said the devastation, the potential that the partner's going to leave. So then that, you know, that brings in their abandonment issues. So if you think about the people that you provide this podcast for, that's a really big issue, isn't it? About, you know, being abandoned. And if you're abandoned, then you're not going to survive. Yeah. So it then becomes this huge problem that people just literally can't figure out because they're not placing it back to where it actually truly belongs, which is with the original ruptures, with the original um, issues of this is where you're going to get your value from. So this is why I spend an awful lot of time in childhood um, and looking at childhood experiences. And one of the things that concerns me with regards to training for psychotherapists is that if you're an adult psychotherapist, you don't get taught a great deal about childhood experiences mm. and why that's such a, an important thing to, to look back at. You know, So if you think about CBT, they spend very, very little time in childhood as far as I'm aware. So that's my understanding of, of CBT therapy. But actually we have to look at where is all of this stuff playing out from? What's, what's the story? What's the narrative? What are the scripts that you've developed? Well, those scripts that people have developed have come from their childhood experiences when they need to devise an idea, an identity of themselves. So this is why those those early relationships, those early childhood events always will have an impact on what's going on for us relationally. And if you think about sex, all sex is relational. It doesn't matter whether it's a one-night stand whether it's a long-term relationship, whether it's a, you know, someone's got a fuck buddy, but it doesn't really matter what it is, what type of relationship you're in, it is relational. So that will be, um, what, however that relationship is manifesting in the here and now was a consequence of those childhood experiences. Hmm. Does that make sense? It's like where you would, where you'd have to, you have to create that connection between those two states of, of being child and, and adult. But do, I'm, I'm, Scott constantly tells me off for asking too many questions. So I was, I was waiting for him to ask questions, but he's, he's enjoying me. He's enjoying me. Yeah. Squirm. So, <laughs> well, I'm not, I'm, it's fine now. It's, it's more it's when Lisa said, fuck buddy. Because <laughs> I could just Yeah, I was see. wondering what that response is going to be like. <laughs> Well, I'll have to Google that later. Sorry. I have no idea. I mean, what that we means. shouldn't laugh. We we shouldn't laugh because it's quite a serious subject. <clears throat> to be fair, um, but you know, uh, just the terminology in itself, you know, that, that is a thing, isn't it? And yeah. you know, I I think um, it's definitely something without sharing about anything to do with um, kind of other people's experiences is definitely a thing because it's so transactional sometimes in in sexual relationships for people who have had that kind of early adversity because you know the the relationship sometimes is very different to the sexual part of it isn't it you know um and and to connect to takes a lot of work for some of these people because it's it's hard for them to to kind of well, use I'm, I'm using the word connect again, but to connect the two because sex is one thing and a relationship is another thing. Sometimes, I, and that's just my I'm I'm not trained like you, Alisa, but that's just my impression of how that works for some of, some of the people who've had these kind of early years um, traumas and and difficulties. Is is that right, or am I just talking? No, that that is right. That that will be right for some people. Mm. Absolutely. But it's still about relationship, even if it's just relationship with themselves. It's about what, what are they taking into that experience? 
Yeah. So you, you can never discount the relationships, regardless of whether it's it is that transactional kind of sex or whether it's sex in a relationship or even you know what kind of relationship that is. Mm. The first and foremost is it's still that relationship with self, isn't it? And again, what what we are then carrying into that experience, which will all be part of again those childhood experiences. But yeah, yeah, yeah it really can't be separated out. Mm. The people, sorry. Scott, because no, no, no. Not, I was no. going to say, do no. people, do, when you're working with adults, do you find that then there's, if we're talking about something that's sexual, which is a, should be and is an adult activity, um, do people find it difficult to, or reluctant to perhaps talk about their childhoods? Do people think, oh, hang on, we can't, these two things are mm. rightly, discon- should be disconnected, but you're wanting to connect them? Uh, no, I, I don't find that people are necessarily, but I think it's the way that I explain it. So I, I explain it, I suppose, just the way that I've explained it to you is sex is about relationships, um, regardless of who you're having sex with and what type of relationship that you're in. And I need to understand their blueprint for relationships and how I'm going to understand that is by understanding their childhood. And most of the time people are really, really willing. And actually they find it really cathartic as well because it's almost like, <clears throat> so what I do is I, I create a formulation at the end of doing this process, which might take me up to about, you know, four or five sessions to actually get all of the information from people that I'm looking at. And it's almost like they've just been this massive jigsaw and they've been all of these pieces and all the pieces have been there, <clears throat> but they've never been able to put them together. Mm. So by the end of this process, they, they just get to put like I said, you know, they just they make sense of themselves, and that's really, really powerful when they get to do that, hmm. and when they get to see the connections. And often, what I hear people say is, apart from the fact that well, that just makes so much sense. It's like it's so obvious now that I'm thinking about it. But they'll often say, "Yeah, I had a feeling that my relationship with my dad had something to do with this, but I couldn't quite figure out why or how." Yeah. So people know it. It's just I'm just there to facilitate, kind of helping them to understand it in, in a kind of a different way, in a way that makes sense to them. So then that's the stuff that actually often needs to be worked on. It's those primary relationships, it's those primary ruptures, those attachment injuries, the the trauma that we, we then need to address with the sex um, issues coinciding. But if we were just dealing with the, the sexual issues, things don't really change all that much because they're still in the same script and their body's still going to be responding in the same way. So we kind of have to take people back to the very beginning. Um, but like I said, most of the time, people find it really cathartic and, and really healing when you, when you do that. When they understand that their body's responding in exactly the way that they're supposed to be responding, given the circumstances that they've been in. Mm-hmm. Um- this is all fascinating stuff, and I think um, normally we kind of we there's a lot of banter, but actually, it is really serious stuff, isn't it? And it's it's the stuff of life. It's really serious stuff, but I, I think also again, you know, it's all very shaming stuff. And one of the things that can really help with shame is humour, and it is funny. So it's, yeah, it's massive. It is really serious, but sometimes in the therapy room, it's just funny. Yeah, you know, and the, the clients are laughing and, and they say something. <laughs> <laughs> can't believe I'm saying this to you, you know, about some of the things that they've, they've done or that, that they're thinking. It, if you can bring that humour in, so yeah, you're laughing with them, obviously you're not laughing at them, but if you can bring that humour in, it really helps to, to kind of take the fuse or the charge out of what it is that they're, mm-hmm. they're feeling. Yeah. And 
thinking about the um, children and sort of children who pass through the care system, and I guess we're conscious we're not pathologizing all children who are in the care yeah. system, but and all of that kind of all those caveats that we put in place. Um, but children who've experienced sort of sexual abuse, how? And I think that's a lot of a lot of um, a lot of people who support children who've experienced sexual abuse. It's it's quite it's, it remains a huge taboo. Um, and how that is then worked out in childhood, but then also in adulthood. And do do you work with people who've experienced sexual abuse? And, you know, what, that sounds like that, even, I'm not even sure what questions to ask, because I'm just, I want to be, I want to be really sensitive to the, to the issue. But, you know, what, what then happens to people as they move in, or what can happen to people in views of their, their idea, their, how they think about sex, Mm. the um, I th- oh, it can be it can be quite gender based, and that in itself can be controversial. Corner the idea of you know gender responses, but again, I think you have to think about how um, children are conditioned to be a particular gender. So you know, it's, I suppose it's a conditioned response in, in, in many respects. Um, but you'll probably be surprised at how I do see people who have had. Um, horrendous sexual abuse experiences um, happen to them. But probably not as much as you think. So when people come with sexual issues, it tends to be more of the relational trauma. That's the issue. You know, it tends to be more of the stuff that is is sort of slightly less um, overt. It's more the covert stuff as opposed to, you know, sexual abuse is really obvious that that would create a trauma response Hmm. Um, but that's not necessarily what I say a lot of the time but the people who I do see who have had um, sexual abuse in in their um, childhood they women tend to avoid sex or they tend to move towards sex and when they're doing that they can be in a a trauma reenactment where I'm I'm, I'm sure you're, you're quite familiar with that Term, maybe you've had other people aren't talking about trauma. <clears throat> but what they would maybe do there is put themselves in, not in, in exactly the same position, but they will put themselves in a position of having sex because um, what they're wanting to do is give themselves permission to be there. Whereas in childhood, they couldn't. There was no permission for them to be there. They didn't want to be there. So if, if they can put themselves in a position where they are having sex because they want to be there, that's empowering. Yeah. Um. They put themselves in positions of um, of having sex with the idea that they're, they're going to control the situation. And sometimes they can, sometimes they can't, but they'll keep going to those experiences and hope that they're somehow going to feel um, better, you know, they're going to transform that experience. That's not necessarily very conscious. They're not consciously doing this. Um, I'm probably more likely to see the, the people who are more sexually avoidant rather than people who, who move um, towards sex. So that would be people who um, dissociate when, that, when they're in a sexual experience. You know, they will literally just leave their body. So things are happening. They're not aware that they're not present for those things to to um, to be aware of, of what's going on. And that can be really, really difficult with regards to how their partner feels about sex as well. So it's not just the person who... Um, has had the the abuse experiences it also impacts the partner because they don't understand why you know the, their partner's just literally just lying there not re- not really you know doing anything that very old-fashioned 
traditional view of of sex, I suppose. You know, like you just you lie back and think of England. You know, that's what some of the um, the people will will do. So that has a really big impact on on partners. Um, and then for men, that could be things like um, again erectile problems. It could be pre- premature ejaculation. It can be delayed ejaculation. It can be avoidance of sex. So if you think about men avoiding sex, how shaming that is because of the the narrative that we have around um, men and sex is that you should be up for it 24-7, you should want it all the time, you should be super sexual, and, and some men just, just aren't. Um, that's not necessarily because of hard sexual trauma, could be for all, you know, multitude of, of reasons. So there's lots of different presentations that I see when people who have had um, sexual trauma. It depends on um, personality, temperament, it depends on their scripts, it depends on how that sexual experience the sexual abuse was managed it, you know there's so many different components to why somebody might be responding to something as an adult as well so you can't just make the assumption that you know a doesn't always just um go yeah. straight to, to you yeah. know the, the, the yeah big, um set of, of variables as to how people respond when it comes to to sex um yeah and i um, vaginismus is, the, is another um, common one that I see with women. Again, not necessarily because they've had sexual trauma, um, but that's when the body is going into an unconscious anxiety response. The pelvic floor um, goes into spasm, so the woman can't be penetrated by anything, and it's really painful and often quite distressing. And again... It doesn't always happen with trauma. That that would be sort of the the obvious idea. So mm. I think the other thing that you've got to do as a sex therapist is not always assume that if they've got a sexual problem, your client's got a sexual problem, that it's going to be sexual trauma that's created that sexual problem. Although that right. would be the logical way to think about it. Yeah, right. it really isn't the case often. Mm. Yeah, because I mean that is obviously I'm gay, so I don't know much about the women's anatomy. Um, but I, I I do hear that quite a lot, and that doesn't necessarily mean anything, does it? It could just be a state of mind or a anxiety about something else. Or I mean, is that right? Yeah, or, yeah. yeah, yeah, no, no, it could. So um, women have either primary vaginismus or secondary vaginismus. So primary vaginismus is um, vaginismus that's been there from the, the first attempts to having anything inside them so that could be a tampon for example so nothing sexual at all but the vaginismus mm-hmm. will or the anxiety will create that unconscious response um at that again that could be sexual messages though implicitly explicitly um i see vaginismus quite commonly in um muslim women for example or women who've been told no sex before marriage and okay. there might yeah. be um some sexual experiences might be happening <clears throat> before marriage, and then the shame of like, oh my goodness, I shouldn't be doing this. So vaginismus mm. will um, present itself at that point, or um, poor sex education. The idea that you know some women are terrified that it's going to hurt because and then they're going to bleed all over the place because this is what they've been told. So again, body's going to respond to protect them. Yeah, you know, just don't put anything inside you, and everything will be fine, kind of thing. But very, very unconscious. And then secondary vaginismus is something where there has um, penetration, penetrative sex has been absolutely fine, and then some event happens, and often that can be childbirth, for example. Um, you know, if you think about childbirth, it can be a, a trauma in itself, physically yeah. and mm. emotionally. 
gain that can cause vaginismus. Um, so it, 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 once again, it's not standard. You know, you have no, to really yeah. understand the person and, and their history to figure out why <clears throat> is your body responding to protect you in this particular way? What what does it think is is happening? Where is yeah. this coming from? Mm. And and it's really interesting because I, I just something you said there triggered what well, didn't trigger me. <laughs> That's the wrong one. <laughs> it just it took me back to sex ed at school. Yeah. So bear in mind, eighties child, well, late, well, seventy six. I was born. So eighties <laughs> child at school, and just thinking about those times um, when I ended up in high school, and that's when sex ed was, you know, not like now where it's kind of taught earlier on in prime. Well, not early in primary schools, but it starts in primary school. <clears throat> Excuse me. And thinking about sex ed that we had, and I always remember, and my dad, God bless him, he's he's no longer with us, but um, I came home full of beans beans that we'd been opened up to sex ed at school because really I just wanted to embarrass the shit out of my yeah. parents by yeah. mentioning it yeah. and yeah. I didn't get the response that I was respect- expecting now part well I mean obviously my sex ed didn't relate to my sex life now if I if I look at it yeah. but what happened was my mum passed a baton on to my dad <laughs> My dad is a 50s child. So, yeah, exactly. Al, you can put your head in your eyes. So his, his um, and like I say, God love him, he's not with us anymore, so he can't explain himself or anything. But, you know, dad, if you're listening, oh, geez. Anyway, he did the thing of, um, so your mother told me you've um, been doing some stuff on the birds and the bees at school. Bear in mind, I was probably 14, 15 at this time. So birds and the bees wasn't cutting it, really. He said, if you've got any questions, uh yeah just let me know and i was thinking okay that response is never going to make me be able to ask a question of you and does does that kind of response from a parent then result in this kind of embarrassment and we've talked about shame already and shame around sex and sex ed and sex lives and all that sort of stuff is that a thing oh without a doubt and i find that the conversation about who should be providing sex ed a really, really interesting one. Mm. And if it, it, I suppose in some respect, it doesn't really matter if it's coming from the teachers or whether it's coming from the parents. If the teacher or the parent has their own sexual shame or is embarrassed, you know what kids are like? Kids are going to pick up that, you know, a mile <laughs> off. They're just going to see that straight away. And they're either going to play upon it and really wind you up yeah. or... They're going to avoid it. So we talk about um, when it comes to sex, we talk about shame by omission. So we talk about, you know, if if someone's not going to talk about it to me, then it must be really bad. It must be really scary. Mm. Or it must be something that I really can't discuss. So like your dad's response. So if you've got any questions, it's, it's such a sort of like, but please don't ask me. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's basically what he's saying, isn't it? <laughs> like, you know, I, w- I want to be the good parent, but, but please bother. Oh, bless him. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. It's a very typical response. Yeah. So unless as adults, we're really getting our act together with regards to our thoughts on um, sex our thoughts on gender, our thoughts on orientation, mm. our thoughts on own use, all, all of that kind of stuff. Unless we know where we are about that and we can talk about that and think about that quite openly and confidently, how are our kids going to feel? But yeah. having said that, 
it's it's really tricky. If my stepson um gets to to hear this, he he will be horrified. Um, <laughs> but I did have an incident, considering that I am a sex therapist. I did have an incident where something happened. I don't really necessarily want to say what what happened because that would embarrass the life out of him. But he was nine, and um his mother um wanted his dad, who I'm married to, to to speak to him about it. Um, and I was like super cool and like, well, of course, we can speak to him about it. You know, this is what I do for a living. And, mm-hmm. you know, we attempted to speak to him about it and he was having absolutely none of it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I was mm-hmm. just thinking, well, am I really, or as parents, are we really the people who should be speaking to kids about this? You know, are there not yeah. some things that kids want to have their own space with, that they want to have a little bit of privacy with? Yeah. I don't know. It's just, it's a really tricky issue, isn't it? It's really contentious when you think about it. And I really don't know what the right answer is other than, but the, I suppose I'm contradicting myself, aren't I? I was somebody who was really open, who could very capable have that conversation with a, with a nine-year-old, but he was not coming anywhere near me. Yeah. Or his dad, or his mum. It's, it's some of that about age as well, because I'm thinking, like my experience, which I've just shared there, then resulted in me being the complete opposite um and i remember the year five conversation at school where it was like okay so they invited you in to watch the video that they were going to show to your kids um and i actually watched the video and went there is no way in this world you're showing my kids that because number one it's got kylie minogue music on it from 1980s um it's so fashion it doesn't explain families it doesn't explain different kinds of relationships yeah. and all that sort of stuff it's very heterosexual based um and i wasn't being stubborn i was just saying that you know actually if we're going to teach children and young people about sex we need to be very open with them about like you say gender sexuality sex all the rest of it and to the point now where i regret being like that because <laughs> i hear everything and believe me some of it is just like i don't want to hear it but but in terms of age i think you know <clears throat> it was all age appropriate so it was you know it was kind of at levels for various things. And I think that as adoptive parents and foster carers and, you know, kinship carers, I think we're very conscious of age appropriate because we don't want to kind of approach it too soon, but we want to be open and honest and say, we're here if you need us kind of thing. Yeah. 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 I I really do appreciate that about, especially for um, adopters and, and kinship carers. I think that's a really important point. And I think that's that's probably about as much as you can do, but it's maybe about with confidence saying, okay, so is there anything? I think the thing is, that if you were to say to someone, is there anything that you want to say about sex? Anything you want to ask, just just ask. Rather than saying, is there anything that you want to know about porn? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Do you know what I mean? And just being really quite explicit about mm. that so that you, you immediately take that, or you give permission. Oh, right, okay, so it's, it's okay to talk about porn. Yeah. Because I suppose otherwise you've got a child who thinks, well, yeah, I can talk about sex, but I can't talk about that bit of sex. Or I can't talk about that part. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Mm. Oh, you're very quiet. But no, you you're on a you're you find a you find a little niche for yourself. Cheeky <laughs> um, <laughs> bugger. <laughs> but, but but in all seriousness, Al, you've got five girls and one boy. Yes. So, and I'm not putting you on the spot here, but, but what, um, I mean, you, you've got a, a good range in age as well. So what has hmm. been your experience in terms of, you know, going from your oldest who's late twenties? 30. Oh, she's 30. Oh. 
And how was the youngest than Al? Well, what is the age range that you uh, that you have? Thirty eleven is my. Well, she was twelve like, last week, week before last. Um, well, see, I think it's well again. Well, when we're really thinking about myself as a teenage boy, the last person in the world. <laughs> no, I don't, do about this don't, is, do no don't do that. Don't do that. Let's keep him in it. Let's keep him somewhere else. Um, <laughs> it's not nice. And um, but I would not have wanted to talk to my parents about that. That would they be the last people in the world? Uh-huh. Um, in fact, Stuart Dockray, uh, whilst walking up to the, uh, he he told me the facts of life whilst we're out playing football. Stuart Dockray, so that's where I got my information from. Um, but I think, oh, I think it's really tricky because I think all, I think everyone struggles with it. I don't think there's, I think there's very few people who go, I've <laughs> got this one sorted. Yeah. Um, and when you play into that, children who've got complicated early life stories. So, well, I, I give an example. One, my children that they they've got a complicated story that's got aspects of stuff around. Oh, I'm, I, I can't. I don't really want to say it, but it, it no. was really important to me that we that it, it, understanding about sex helps how children make sense of their story. Because mm-hmm. when you talk to a five year old and you say your mummy had four babies yeah. by three men. That means one thing in four mm-hmm. years. Uh, that's very different to a 13-year-old who goes, oh, hang on, that that's different. Yeah. That story makes different sense now. And because I understand about sex, and I understand about relationships. So I think that we've got to be, we've got to help children navigate perhaps difficult stories that we're not part of, which is really complicated. Mm-hmm. I don't know whether that's got to do with sex, but it's about relationships, isn't it? And it's about being open and frank and honest. And, oh, it's... I think that's a really good point, actually, Alan, and maybe that is the role of the parent then, is to help them make sense of something as opposed to actually giving them the information somehow. Because I wonder if, because that would be the same as you, you know, if I think about my tight teenage self, the last person I would want to go to is is my mum and my dad. And actually, what I did do when I was 17, I decided I wanted to go on the pill. I spoke to my stepdad because he was just that one bit removed. He wasn't, Mm. he was never going to tell me off. He was never going to give me a hard time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like my like my mother would. So that that's who yeah, I went to. And I wonder if there's something about we need to be more child centered and think about who do the children want this information off, rather than assuming who should be yeah. giving it to the to the child to the child to the, to the children. But I think your point about make, helping them make sense is really important, and maybe that's the the role of the adult or the role of the parent or the caregiver. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess just being there, you know, if if yeah. it's there. I mean, clearly I was a drama queen by going home and going, Oh, we learned about sex ed today. Clearly I was gay before I knew I was gay. But um anyway, um as always, you just, were the last to find out. Uh, yeah, I literally was. <laughs> well, I think yeah. Anyway, um and I'm thinking as well, um, sorry, Al, just coming back to this. No, no. The difference between girls and boys, because you know, they say with boys you've only got one dick to worry about, with girls you've got hundreds of dicks to worry about. So was there a difference in terms of how you approached that between, you know, five girls, one boy? Or did you just kind of I, I don't know. I d I, I don't know what I'm asking here, but I think it's a difference. Um I think I told you that phrase, didn't I? Um You, you did not. 
I did. Oh, um, oh you maybe did. I don't know. That maybe I did. Um, I think, um, do you know, I, I, I can't honestly recall how we navigated that with our children at different ages. Um, but I think that maybe reflects the nature of my children's or, or children mm. with complicated stories. It, there isn't this moment where you go, oh, you're ready. I remember having to share things that were probably too young, but yeah, having, having to make sense of things for children who were younger so that when they reached a developmental age, it didn't come as a bombshell. Yeah. Yeah. Does that mm -hmm. I'm dancing around that, but does that make sense? No. Kind of... yeah, 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 it's yeah. absolutely true. Absolutely true. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um I mean I remember a conversation when when um the older when my older two were placed with us and the social worker said that one of them would be a father by the time he was 15, 16. And that didn't happen. And I think that didn't happen because we were very kind of not open about it, but we talked about it. Do you know what I mean? We talked about it in an age-appropriate way to make sure that, you know, it's not that, you know, there would have been any problem. If that had happened, we would have dealt with it. Of course we would have done, because I think that comes with being a parent of somebody who's, yeah. you know, clearly experienced a lot of adversity and childhood experiences that are, you know, not the kind of majority, if we like. But I think that, you know, I, I would, yeah, I don't know. So Sorry, many... Lisa, you're the guest. Yeah, yeah, we're, we're just having a chat. You could just sit <laughs> yeah. there for a minute. Um, Although, to be fair, it's a, it's a logical chat, isn't it? Because I think that a lot of people who are listening to our podcast will have these kind of experiences coming up or they may have experienced them and might want validation of the fact how they dealt with it. I don't know. I'm just, you know. Yeah. I mean, this isn't our story, but I know children who were, con I, know, I know families whose children were conceived when their mothers were prostitutes. That they, that's mm. their that's their story, yeah. and that's a really well. Is it a moral question I'm about not, sex, about sex yeah. work, and all of that kind of thing? But still, that's a very specific story that a child has to make sense, or a young person has to make sense of, because. Mm. And but you don't want them to work that out themselves, do you? Do you? Yeah. No. No, no, no. You you really don't because. Yeah, the, the need that the need you to help them make sense of that and what that actually means and what that means about them as yeah. well. You know, you and I suppose you, you said something quite interesting um before there all about sort of like being prepared. Be, or not necessarily being prepared, but that it's not gonna happen in a very linear way. You you know, like you have to have these conversations when something comes up, when something happens. So you may be forced into a into a conversation that you haven't necessarily thought of but you need to be prepared for the idea of yeah that at some point this is going to happen isn't it some, something's yeah. going to happen in daily life where you think okay right yeah now I need to have that conversation but it's not, maybe not the way that you planned it the way that you thought you were going to to have it where you can sit them down and be all nice and calm you know maybe because of some rupture that's happened within the, the family it could be all sorts of different reasons yeah I've got a story of a friend of mine whose son and not an adopter but it's just his son was a He's maybe 12, so he's just had a conversation, a sex ed conversation about condoms and, you know, using condoms for very good. And they were at the checkout in Asda and there must have been condoms, flavoured condoms. And his son, like in front of everyone, went, Dad, what flavoured condoms for? At the checkout. <laughs> and um, Brilliant. Uh, and my friend is a, he's a doctor, so that that makes no difference. He just said, he just said, well, we'll talk about, we'll talk about this later. 
yeah. and mentioned again. <laughs> but I just think, but there's that idea that you've got to be ready. I mean, like you, Scott, you were saying, you know, you, uh, you someone said something about your son that mm. is not necessarily a good thing to say, but it's made you think, right, we need to get ahead of this curve. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, the, 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 there's there's kind of lots of things I because similar discussion, actually, we were in um, we went to visit friends with when they were very young and I'm talking nine and ten. Um, and they went to the bathroom and they obviously there's condom machines in the bathroom of mm-hmm. this restaurant. And um, I wouldn't normally mention names, but Brandon came back and he went, Dad. And he said it out loud. What's condoms? like that (laughs) (laughs) he was only nine and we were like okay so we but the thing was i think because we're quite open like that we just explained what it was do you know what i mean like there was no embarrassment about it because i didn't want him being embarrassed about it um Mm -hmm. but in the same kind of token you know the 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 phone bill that we got from um when they'd been texting babe station when they stayed with nanny um, because yeah. Nanny had a television in the room and they could text in when they had their mobile phone when they were very little. And I'm talking like 12, 13. <laughs> and, I mean, to be fair on O2, O2, if anybody's listening from O2, they had O2 phones back in those days. They did cancel the charges because actually they, they shouldn't have been able to do that because it was registered as a child's mobile phone. But it was kind of, you know, all these all these things are all experiences that we I guess, you know, we didn't have stuff like that when we were younger. So there was no opportunity for us to do that. But now we just have to be so aware of it. And but not not to the point of shaming them. It's just like, okay, yeah. so do you know what? That sort of stuff is not until you're older. So you know, don't do it again. Your phone is now blocked from texting anybody apart from me. Um, you know, that kind of thing. Um, I mean, I tried to think what kind of fun they had, but you know, whatever. It's just like <laughs> You kind of have to, I guess, yeah. uh, our our generation as parents as well are the first to experience the, the kind of online texting, you know, por- uh, online porn, you know, all that yeah. sort of stuff. And I think we have to learn from that as well. Yeah, you're absolutely right because we can't use our experience. So you just said you're 47, I'm 50. I don't know how old you are. Um, It's 12, 50-12. 50-12. So we can't use our own experiences because the world's just completely different. So we can't rest on that that idea, well, this is what it was like when we were were kids. Well, so fuck, it doesn't really make any difference how it was when we were kids. That's not how it is for kids now. Mm -hmm. And you're right. So parents do have to learn what's out there, what the problems are, What's not as much of a problem as maybe you think it is. Yeah. So so that we we're not shaming kids when they do brilliant things like that. <laughs> when they're texting Babe Station <laughs> on Freeview in Nanny's house. It's just a so entrepreneurial, don't you think? I mean, that's, that's well, just I genius. think so. I mean, to be fair, like they found it. They were clearly an age where it interested them. So yeah, you yeah. know, and then you know, you fast forward to the other one who just wanted to set fire to duvets and stuff. So you know, I was quite I'm, actually the babe yeah. station thing was less of an issue. So. Absolutely, I I'd completely agree with you. Can I unpick a little bit? We when we spoke. Um, when we first spoke, we talked a bit about shame and your 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 PhD is kind of looking around that issue, isn't it? So can yeah. 
and we we were looking at shame and the impact and this is intrinsically linked to sex, sexual stuff but also it's very much a bigger issue for children who've experienced adversity is that fair to say thinking about thinking about in terms of developmental age and the impact of kind of those disruptions in in early life um so unpick because you use some you started to you've got this hypothesis and that you're kind of exploring and you're developing tell me a bit about that then because that's really interesting oh yeah so my phd is in um shame it was originally relational trauma but i now think it's going to be more around emotional neglect um and compulsive sexual behavior in adult men and but my interest is in shame and the reason why I chose compulsive sexual behavior is because at the time that's that's the thing that I was seeing in my therapy room more often than anything else um and I suppose it goes back to to the history you know people people's histories the history people's histories were really really similar and I think well there's something to this and it was about disinterest it was about unavailable parents it was about you know parents being too distracted with maybe their own relationships or their own mental health and what have you and it's not to blame parents but this is just the experiences that these men were having as as children really um and as I say shame is my my interest so yeah I've, I've as part of my PhD as a result of my PhD I'm probably thinking about shame for a long time before I started my PhD as well. Actually, I've created a, a theory which I called shame containment theory. I think that was the conversation that we, I was having. So, you know, I've got very specific words for for different elements of, of shame um, because shame isn't just shame. It's much more complicated than that, as I'm, as I'm sure you can imagine. And, you know, there's, there's different elements of shame and there's different um, ways that we experience shame, etc. So to go back to your question, I think about children who have had adversity. All humans are have the potential to feel shame because it's part of our attachment system. And I think this is something that actually gets missed quite often when it comes to, to thinking about shame. So shame is protective. It's supposed to be there. And if there's a rupture in our attachment to a caregiver, it doesn't really matter what age that can be from, um, from birth, it can be from... Um, you know, two-year-old, five-year-old, it, it, it really doesn't matter at all. Um, our attachment system will produce shame, the feeling of shame, in order to make us modify our behaviour so that we um, appear more attractive to our caregivers, so the caregiver will want to reconnect back up with us. So as children, we will take responsibility for that rupture. So rather than it being the adult's responsibility, we will take responsibility for it instead because that's safer for us to do. Right, because I'm, right, I'm just thinking that and letting that percolate in my head for a bit, um, because I think probably, Scott, you would agree as well, often we see, working when we're working with families whose children who yeah. risk, because shame is, we use tiny drops of shame in normal parenting or normal behaviour modification, like in a classroom, a teacher will say, oh, Johnny, stop yeah. doing that. And that highlights the behavior to the group. That person feels a small piece of shame that means that they like, so that makes sense in terms of they modify their behavior to fit back into the group. And that works. It's not great, but it works. But for children who've experienced adversity, my experience in working with children with challenging behavior is that 
the exact opposite happens is those children are overwhelmed by that shame. That shame is just, it's not a drop, it's an ocean and tables it's are turned ocean. over. Yeah. Yeah. And tables yeah, yeah. are turned yeah. over and it, it kind of, it disrupts, goes off the scale. And so does that kind of, does that make sense for children? What, yeah, yeah, it makes absolute sense for children. So children in, in those moments, what they're experiencing is what I call uncontained shame. So most definitions of, of shame, if, if anyone was to pick up a book about shame and you read the definition, what they're going to describe is uncontained shame. And um, they, they will describe it in such a way that that's what shame is, but it's not shame is all sorts. Of, it, it, there's all sorts of different layers to, to shame. But what you're describing is, is uncontained shame. And what happens in uncontained shame is two things. One is that all of the contained shame that we want to keep hidden, that we can't allow anyone to see, suddenly comes forth in this massive explosion. And it feels horrifying. It just, it feels horrendous. The other thing that happens in an uncontained shame event is that um, we're, we are in a body memory of the original ruptures that we've experienced as, as smaller, younger children. And that's when we feel like we are abandoned, we're going to be annihilated, we're not going to survive. So it's literally one of the worst things that we can experience as a human is, is these uncontained shame events. But what we have to do when we're in uncontained shame is we have to manage it somehow. And how we, one of the ways that we manage it is by um, anger. So we go into uh, what we would call attack others. So we we literally have to mitigate. We have to get rid of our shame because it's too unbearable. We have to give it to somebody else. And who we're going to give it to is the caregiver that's in front of us or the teacher that we're pissed off with. or the, So the, the teacher that's actually yeah. created the uncontained shame response in that moment. Because for some people, um, their uncontained shame is going to, to be exposed. It, it's going to come out with something that might feel like for other people is, is a bit trivial. So, for example, being shown up in front of the rest of the class because they've been acting out somehow or they've been playing the clown or, or whatever, if that teacher points that out, that could be a real uncontained shame trigger. Yeah. And then that's when the chair's going to be thrown at the teacher. Does that does that make sense? How even in those moments, it's it's still about... It's still about shame. And actually what's happening is, is that the uncontained shame is still trying to protect us. It's trying to say, you need to get away from me. I need to get the shame away from me. I need to do something that's actually going to... Um, so it's it's what I call a recontainment strategy. <clears throat> I need to recontain the contained shame that has just exploded out of me. I need to do something to get that back in its box. So I mean, some I, I, children are going to become very withdrawn. Some people, some children are going to become very demonstrative and very out and very angry and aggressive. I, I mean, Scott and I, we we talk to a lot of parents, children with challenging behaviour, and so often we see that the key to supporting children is changing how we parent them, isn't it, Scott? Mm. You're looking. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and often no, no, I'd agree. About... agree. Well, it's about accommodation, isn't it? Because sometimes you just have to accommodate behaviours or symptoms or whatever you want to call them by doing things differently to your peers who have children who haven't had these experiences. Absolutely. You know, I, I, I couldn't agree more. 
Because the thing that is, that's going to trigger shame, that is going to move somebody into a, um, an experience of uncontained <coughs> shame, those triggers are so individual, they're so personal, that if you are, um, and I, 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 again, I just couldn't agree more, and it must be really difficult for parents um, who have adopted to compare themselves to their peers, to other parents who maybe don't necessarily have to um, think about how they're, they're going to manage these challenging behaviours because those children have had a completely different experience and those children aren't necessarily going to be triggered very easily. You know, their shame isn't going to necessarily come forth like mm. uh, someone who, who a child who's, who's been adopted. So this is where, again, why history is, is really important to understand, you know, what's gone on for um, your child what, in their, their previous history, what, what's going on for them. What is it that's actually going to trigger their shame? How do you then... Yeah help yourself to not trigger the shame, to understand what's happening so that that doesn't feel so intolerable for your child that they're going to throw a chair at you. Mm. Because mm. that's really what's what's happening. You know, they, they literally cannot deal with this emotion. It's too big. It's too horrifying. It's terrifying. You're literally in a state of utter horror at, at the idea of being annihilated and you're going to have to get rid of it. You're going to have to do something with it. You cannot manage to stay in that state some action has to be taken. I think it's really helpful to to kind of break that down because, you know, often when I'm speaking to families, they'll say, oh, you, does your child respond well to shame? And they'll go, no, no, it's terrible. But you've sort of yeah. broken it down in a way that actually kind of really makes sense of, of where that, that, where the origins of that lie, that actually you are opening up that original injury as you said mm -hmm. and also all of the subsequent shame but actually that it, there's just such a just such a it's a it's a hair trigger isn't it for so so many yeah. children yeah yeah mm. it will be yeah for, for children who have had adversity it is a really is a hair trigger and it's about noticing what those hair triggers are so that you as parents manage them differently mm -hmm. yeah you know it, in many respects it's not up to the child to manage them because they can't manage them it's, it's up to yeah. us as parents to figure out how how do we help the, the child that that you have. But I think the, the important thing, like I said, so um, you know, shame is part of the attachment system. So if that or when that rupture happens between um parent and child, shame then kicks in to modify that that behavior. And what we then do is a is a subsequent to that, when when that shame happens to modify that behavior when when there's been that rupture that shame then tells us that we're we're not good enough we're not lovable we're not worthy um we're bad we're just we're just generally not okay but we can't really do anything with that shame so it just stays in fight us it just it just remains contained so this is why I, I talk about contained shame and it becomes a sense of self it comes out becomes our core identity um and we call it um trait shame so shame then becomes a, a trait of ours part of our characteristic um and then these moments will happen where the teacher does humiliate us in front of the class or something like that and then all of this contained shame the stuff that we really don't want anyone to see will will just come forward so what we do is we create um, shame contained strategies so we, we create strategies to make sure that that uncontained shame never comes out so those shame contained strategies could be um being the people pleaser, being the good child. It could be being the, again, the class clown. 
It could be being the, um, even the naughty child in many respects, which doesn't kind of make any sense because what you then do is perhaps you're focusing on the behaviour and you're not necessarily focusing on the on the core of, of who they are. And you've got to bear in mind that these strategies have been developed as children, you know, with a, with a, a childlike application of, of yeah. these strategies. But we carry these strategies on through into adulthood as well, which is, you know, the premise of my PhD, really. So men who are behaving in compulsive sexual behaviour, that's often a shame containment strategy. That helps them to contain their shame either by dissociating and numbing out or, or by, you know, if they're purchasing sex and going to a sex worker, they get to be um, the the generous one, the, the good guy, the one who's there pleasing the other person. All, all of these things that they are doing, they're actually shame containment strategies. But they're doing these things because of these primary ruptures that they've had as children. Um, that's created this sense of shame. And they're, again, terrified of these moments of uncontained shame. That, that's the thing that we really have to avoid as, as much as possible because we literally feel like we could die in those moments. And it's, yeah, this is just a really cheery conversation. Well, no, it is. I feel but like we're getting to the end. This has gone. <laughs> but, I mean, it, to be honest, yeah, a lot of people are living. In? Well, we talk about more sex. Um, but I think that... A lot of people who are, who are caring for, living with, or working with children with complex stories, shame is such a massive issue. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, and it is intrinsically linked with how you then live your life, which would then make sense for se- you know people's sexual relationships, um, be they male, female. Um, it just it, it it feels like the more as we time goes on, we seem to understand that these children more and more and how to kind of care for them. It's fascinating. So mm. is business good? <laughs> <laughs> business is very good. Business is slightly too good. Um, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to slow down on the amount of clients that I've, um, that I'm taking on at the moment because it's, it's a bit too busy. I don't is think it, I'll ever not be in demand. <laughs> I mean, I just can't imagine kind of like, I mean, my, I've got my work and then you switch off at the end of the day and you go home. How do you kind of, it seems like a really odd thing. Like it's something that's like a very small part of a lot of people's lives, but it's actually your bread and butter. Is it just a bit of a peculiar headspace? I wondered where not you were going no. with that, to be honest. <laughs> Yeah, I, yeah, I, I, I ask if I take my, my work home with me, Alice. I'm not you asking you that. <laughs> I'm not asking you that. I thought he was going to ask you, how's your no, sex life, Lisa? <laughs> I'm not. I'm very, very not asking, very, very not that. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's just the same as, as it is for you. You know, you, um, I presume, as a social worker, listen to very tough stuff and you you know you're surrounded by trauma in your day job it's it's just the same for me you have to switch off you, you can't take that stuff home you know and, and I'm pretty good at leaving whatever goes on in the therapy room it's very rare that I do take anything home with me um oh. and often if, if I do I suppose that that may be moments where my shame has become uncontained you know I'm just thinking you're talking about um about kids and their response being a parent is so shame inducing yes. because we, we often really want to do a good job and we often yeah. don't do a good job. Mm. 
and, and we see that, you know, and, and as you were saying as well, Scott, you know, that, that comparison to other parents, you know, and we can really shame ourselves. So, yeah, um, that tends to be times where when I do take stuff home as if I, if I've done something like, oh God, yeah, that, that wasn't, that wasn't yeah. okay. That actually didn't go as well as I, I wanted to because we're human, aren't we? And we're, we're going to feel it. Yeah, absolutely. I, 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 when Al first talked to me about doing this podcast, I was like, oh, what the hell is he on about? But uh, do you know what? I'm so glad that we did it. I, 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 it's actually been a really fascinating con- conversation, to be honest with you. Um, I didn't know where it was going to go, didn't do any preparation, but it's been absolutely amazing, Lisa. Thank you so much. Um, yes. I'd, I'd, we've probably not done it justice at all as podcast host. I mean, not you. <laughs> yeah. We've probably not asked the right questions. We've probably yeah. gone too deep into areas that we shouldn't have done. But to be fair, the outtakes are quite hilarious um, for Al anyway. Well, for us looking yeah, at Yeah, for us. Not, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Bless your heart. Can I, can I just thank you so much for coming on? I Like I say, I didn't know where this was going to go. It, I, I, it's just been fascinating. So thank you so much for coming on. Really yes. appreciate it. You're very it. welcome. Thank you very much for having me. It's been lovely to, to speak to you both. So how long did I yeah. get? How, how, long, um, how long for Had? Oh, you've done nearly an hour. Way too long. Hour. <laughs> oh, really? So I didn't get sacked after 10 minutes like you threatened I would. <laughs> <laughs> We've not said goodbye. I'm not going to edit this out. It's the, it's the golden rule. The longer you are, the better you are. Um, yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Lisa. We appreciate your time. Yeah, look at him rubbing oh, his really head. To go on and out. Can you just repeat what you've just said there? Oh, stop it. Stop it. It's like carry on podcasting. Um, this is awful. This isn't awful. This is life, Al. This is true, real life. It is real life. It is real life. Um, Suck up, cupcake. That's not an innuendo either. You reach a certain point and then everything's an innuendo. <laughs> but... Lisa, thank you so Interesting. much. No, out. before Lisa goes, actually, just gonna just gonna say this. Lisa, before Al met me, he was so like you weren't homophobic or anything now, but it's just like I opened him up to understanding about gay life. And honestly, I've I've opened his eyes. I really have. I really have, honestly. He if we're going to talk sex, we need to talk offline. We need to do another podcast for a different platform somewhere. Honestly, be hilarious. It would be hilarious. The way that sounds is like you've taken me to some sort of sex dungeon. Yeah, it really does. It gets awful. It could be organised, mate. It could be organised. Oh, please. My registration is being taken from Oh, your registration. Potato, potato, whatever. Get over it. <laughs> Smashing. Okay, well, I, I'm going to have to go. Um, I thank you so much, Lisa. Thank I you appreciate so much for having thank you. you. Cheers. Yeah. Bye-bye. I'm just watching Squirm. <laughs> <laughs> oh, crikey. <laughs> Hilarious. <laughs> But I guess the first thing to say is this is a, we will put an explicit rating on this so we can talk in absolute nice. fine terms. Right. So you don't, we'll not, we'll not beat around the bush. Oh my goodness. And we'll stop innuendos before <laughs> we even start. <laughs>
that has to go on the outtakes at the end of this podcast. It has to. That would be like I'm to. trapped in a carry-on film. <laughs> no, Matron, it's huge. Oh, dear. Honestly. Right. Game face. Compose yourself, man. Compose myself. Get a grip. Get a grip. Um, <laughs> Honestly, I could talk about this stuff until the cows, cows come home. This man, seriously, it's... Oh, no, oh, it's I just, don't know. I just don't know. Yeah, but you just don't suddenly know. can't say anything without it being an innuendo. Like, it, you're making it now. Yeah, it is literally like a carry-on film when you get started, honestly. And the thing is, he makes out that it's a carry-on film as well, rather than just going yeah. with it and then, you know... No, anyway. I've got the mind of a 15-year-old boy. It's just terrible. <laughs> I mean, I'm meant to be professional. You know, I really am meant to be. I'm like, I have a registration uh, and everything, yeah. but, but, you know. Oh. Anyway, come on. Right, okay. Sort yourself out. I will. I get it. I will. I will. I'm close myself. I'll come close myself out.